Uh, it was in the news this week. I don't know if you saw this, but um, there were two researchers off the coast of Hawaii who swam with what is believed to be uh, the largest uh, great white shark on record. And uh, you, can, you can, you know, Google it or whatever and you see them. And I'm, I'm talking, they didn't, they didn't go in a cage. Have you seen this? I mean, they're, they're, they're swimming like you swim with dolphins. I mean, this great white shark, this girl's putting her hand out and rubbing it as it goes by. It's like, what? You know, if there was anything you wanted to do to die, you know, this would probably be, you know, one of those things, a high probability. You know, I swim with great white sharks. You know, this is uh, not the smartest thing to do. Um, in, uh, it reminds me, I read an article uh, as I was studying this week. In 2008, Valclav Smeal, he's a professor uh, emeritus at uh, the College of Manitoba. He wrote a book for MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT Press. And he folk, the book was focused on the um, global trends over the next 50 years. So he just, you know, these guys take boatloads of research, produce a book. And what he did was he took everyday events and he he determined statistically the likelihood that doing that event or being exposed in that environment, whatever it may be, the likelihood of it killing you, okay? Like swimming with great white sharks. Now, this wasn't on the list, but surely, you know, that would be up there. It turns out that you and I are, are really actually in way more danger than we thought. Some of you probably know this being in Nashville. Um, it's not because we do crazy stuff, honestly. Some of the crazy stuff some of you have done, yes, you know, we could lose our life doing. But uh, it turns out that the riskiest thing you can do uh, is spend time in a hospital. Now think about that. This statistically, as he worked it out, it's not the disease that kills you that you go in for, you know, you go in for something. What is it that kills you? It's what you catch, secondary infection or whatever it may be. That, that's the highest likelihood if you spend that much time in a hospital, uh, it could kill you for all of you in the medical profession. Get out while you can, you know? <laughs> run, run. Um, it's one death per 10,000 hours of exposure in a hospital. The second one is something we would probably know. It's what would it be that we, you know, smoking would be the second one. The third one is a shocker, drive a car. I assume everybody drove a car today, so <laughs> beware. You know, it's, it's a conundrum though, especially that first one to me, that the very thing that we think, well, well, the very thing that's there to give life, to save life, okay, statistically, uh, it, it'll kill you. And I think James, in this passage Aaron read, we're gonna unpack it in a moment, I think James has a similar conundrum. I think he's gonna say to you and I that the very thing that we think gives us the life we want is the very thing that's killing us. Now you'll notice it as we work through the passage. If you have your Bibles, please open them to James 1, 9 through 12. James 1, 9 through 12, we're going through the book of James. We are picking up these three verses. Uh, we're in this context from verse two of trials, difficulties. 
All these trials, difficulties, challenges are unique to each individual and God uses them to shape Christ in us, to grow us up, that's verses two to four. And we're gonna notice if, if you have two to four here, trials shape, shape us and make us whole, you're gonna notice verse 12 is a bookend, a soft bookend to that. So we have this package right here as we finish out nine through 12. And he wraps up with the trials will do this as well. So we're looking at these bookends. Rob took us through verses five through eight. And uh, as he reminded us, our greatest need in a trial, in the trials of life, and quite frankly, I mentioned the first week, I said, I don't think we're ever not in trials on this side of heaven. Our greatest need is not relief. Our greatest need is wisdom. And Rob walked us through how to ask the giving God for wisdom. So now it's gonna feel like a sharp turn. It's gonna feel like, what's he talking about? The rich and the poor. I thought we were talking about these trials. Well, poverty and wealth as one of the greatest trials that we will face. That's why we stay in this context. We see it in that way. I'm gonna trace it with three words, poverty, prosperity, and promise. These are just out of the text itself. Verse nine is poverty. Verse 10 and 11 is prosperity. And verse 12 is promise. We're just gonna go through it verse by verse. Look at verse nine. This is the head, under the heading poverty. James says, but the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. You see the juxtaposition the, you know, the, the brother of humble, the lowly is what it literally means. The lowly brother should glory in his high position. Wait, he's lowly, so he needs to be lowly. No, the lowly brother was in the high, his high position. It'll be opposite for the rich, for the rich one. David Nystrom in his commentary on James says this for context, the ancient world knew almost nothing of what we would call middle class. There, there really was no middle class. About 90% of the population of the Roman Empire lived at or below what moderns would call the poverty level. It's not that there weren't in the early church, as we studied the, those first chapters in the book of Acts recently, that there weren't wealthy people there. In fact, James is gonna have a lot to say to rich people, wealthy people, people of means. So they're in the church. Um, but the large majority of the church lived at, at a poverty level, at a subsistence level. Um, I want you to think about our, and, and by the way, the word humble circumstances here, it, I said it means a, a lowly standing because they were viewed lowly. In this day, they were viewed as a less than people. I want you to think about the religious situation of the day. You think back to the gospels as we study the gospels. Um, who were some of the most wealthy Jews of the day, of Jesus's day. Who were some of the most wealthy Jews of the day? Just say it out loud. Tax collectors and priests. People like me, you know, so to speak. It's the, the religious leaders. They, they were the wealthy. And religion in this day is a sad commentary had gotten to that point where, you know, religious leaders disdained the poor in a sense because it's, You've obviously sinned. You've always got a major problem with God. Uh, I'm probably doing very well because look at my life. I'm doing, you see that? It, it, it had degraded into that. Um, 
James calls this person a brother, and literally in my Bible, the, the margin says uh, a member of the church. So let me say this to those of you here who, uh, th this is for people who have put their trust in Jesus. This is for the person who's, who, who believes Jesus died on the cross for their sins, was buried and rose again. If you're here today and you haven't, I'm thrilled you're here. I'm glad you're here. And I love it that you're here because you're getting to hear a little family commentary. We're gonna talk about this as family, but this is some hard stuff. And one of the best ways to get to know Jesus, if I may say this, is to watch the people who say they know Jesus and watch how they live. Now, this is a text. Watch how people around you live with this text or people that you know are Christians. Do they or do they not live according to this pattern that James, give us, James gives us? Well, his high position, you know, glory in your high position is obviously it's not in his life because he's got a low position. So the high position that James is speaking of uh, is his spiritual state, the spiritual reality. That you know, you're poor, you, you, you don't have much in terms of material wealth, but do you understand you have everything in Jesus? Paul will say we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Paul will say that we are co-heirs with Christ. This is your high position. And he says boast about it. This is not a braggadocious boasting, but it is a public boasting. I mean, the word means uh, you can tell people that you're grateful for your high standing in Christ even though you have nothing, have very little here in the world. Um, it's probably uh, James picking up from Jesus, his half-brother, in Matthew 5, 3, where Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What did he mean by that? Does he mean blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom? He means blessed are those who know they are poverty, they have a poverty of spirit, i.e., they are bankrupt in terms of self-sufficiency. Blessed is that person who knows they have nothing they can bring to the table to make themselves right with God. Blessed is the person who is utterly dependent on God. It's a blessed person. And that's what he's speaking of here. Um, it's true for every person in the room. I just want you to know, if you've placed your faith in Christ, you know, our, our greatest blessing and, and our our hope in our trial is who we are in Christ, our position in Christ, our value in Christ. But I don't wanna overlook this because this is true even here in Brentwood, Tennessee, in this room, that there's, you know, there are some in this room who have real financial needs. And you know, it would be like me saying, you know, well, be warm and filled. I hope, hope everything works out for you and, and you're gonna lose your um, utilities or something. I mean, that ha that's true. And so there's some here, you know, you go, well, I, I'm glad I'm blessed with that, but I need some money today. Um, how does the church deal with that? Well, you know, in the book of Acts, remember we read where early on they sold everything. Like, so people sold their homes, their uh, resources, and they, and they brought the money and they gave it to the apostles. And they just said, look, if anybody's in need, you guys distribute it. Now, it's interesting. We don't see that pattern repeated in the book of Acts. and We don't see it reinforced in the epistles. But what we do see, and what I'm saying to you is, you know, you don't have to go sell everything and bring it here. I don't, that's not a pattern at all that we see. But what we do see is that the church cared for the church. That the local congregation, if you will, as best they could, met the needs of people in the local congregation. And the way they did that, and you think about this, they were, they, they were living with each other 
they knew each other in such a context that they could say to someone, uh, we have a need, can you all help us? And they could say it without shame. They could say it because uh, this is God's purpose and plan for the church. And so I want to say to you, um, in a church our size, um, man, we do want to help meet the needs you have, the real needs. And the way we're structured to do that is we put everybody in groups so that you're in a context with some other people in your smaller group that you can say if something arises, and we just had an emergency, or we just had something happen, could you guys help? I mean, it may never come to me. That's the way it should work. It may never come to a pastor or someone. It's just handled in your group as brothers and sisters in Christ. But you gotta be in a group to do that which is why we spent the last two weeks inviting you. You know, our, our discipleship pathway is about being at church regularly and being in a group, in a context of a group. Lisa and I have been in a, a, um, a fellowship group for at least the last five years, the group that we, we, we've been in most recently. And I assure you, that group is such that if, if Lisa and I had a need, I, I truly could go to that group and say, I mean, this hit us out of nowhere, you know, it, it, maybe it's my fault, maybe it's not, but we have a need, could you guys help? And that group would help us. I'm telling you, they would help us, and they would, because we're walking in community. And so I wanna encourage you, if you're not in a group, we want you to be in a group. That's just the way we go, that's the way we roll around here. Um, and related to that, uh, today at 4.30, there's a group event. So I did not plan that, I, did, I, I you know, don't think I set all that up just for that. Um, but it's true, we, we have a group event today and I just wanna remind you of that, that you don't have to sign up, just show up over here in the barn at 4.30 and find yourself a community of faith because the trials will come. And even if it's just prayer, right? Even if it's just you can turn to some people and say, pray for us, we need each other. Okay, from poverty to prosperity, look how it switches, you know, the poor, highly exalted, watch what he does in 10 and 11. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation because like flowering grass, he will pass away. Listen to these transitory words, he will pass away. The sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. The rich here is literally carries the sense of one possessing material wealth. This is material wealth that he's talking about. What does it mean for that man or that woman to boast, to glory? But one of the ways that I think it gets, I can clarify this is if you read from the NIV, uh, uh, you know, you'll see it where it speaks of the, the, the poor is in a high position the rich is in a low position. That's really the best way to say it. We don't have to use that word humiliation, which kind of throws us off. No, it's, you know, the poor is in a high position, the rich is in a low position. So let the rich in the low position, excuse me, let them glory in that. Well, what does that mean for, for the, those of means to glory in that? Listen to the New Living Translation. It says, those who are rich should boast that God has humbled them. Now think about that. Boy, the Christian life is sometimes crazy, isn't it? Boast that I've been humbled? Yeah. Yeah, because to be humbled by God is to be gifted. It's to receive a gift from God. 
Humility is, you know, it's not seek, speak, uh, seeing yourself as less than you are. Humility is seeing yourself rightly. It's seeing your value, your worth, your personhood as God sees it. That's to be humble. And we don't see it. We demean ourselves or we exalt ourselves. And so for God to open the eyes of the person of wealth and to help them see your wealth is not connected to your value. What a gift. Exult in that. James says here, what you possess, all that you have, that's not who you are and that doesn't define you. What a gift. Now, the world, of course, says it does. The Bible says it doesn't. So it's a good thing to be humbled by God. Um, Why do you think James gives so much ink to the rich? Think about this. Look at our text. He gives one verse to the poor, and then he gives this massive illustration to the rich. You tell me. Why why does he spend so much time on the rich trying to help them understand, look, everything you got, it's going to turn to dust. Everything you got is like a blade of grass that's green, goes dry for two weeks, and it's brown. I mean, he just goes on and on. Why? Why, why so much on the rich? Anybody? Say it again. It's harder to hear it, isn't it? It's harder to hear it when you got that stuff in your way. It really is. You know, those are people, people in poverty, they, they don't have anything to get in the way. Those of us who have stuff, it's just, it's, it's so true. It gets in our way. And we have trouble putting all of our confidence in God versus all that we have. Um, it's an expanded illustration and, and the words are, you know, are really, um, you know, it's, it's pass away. When you look at it, he's, he's saying um, it fails, it falls off, it's destroyed, it'll fade away, it wither. I mean, this is all stuff that's like, it's gone. It's here and then it's gone. Perhaps James, as the book is a proverbial book, maybe had Proverbs 23 in mind, the proverb there says, do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. So he, 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 he's, I was gonna say hammering. It's not really hammering. He's trying to help the wealthy see that their wealth is passing. It, it doesn't have the value and the weight that the world gives it. That's all he's saying to them and to us. Now, I want you to think about the glory of the poor. The glory of the lowly is their eternal position, their relationship with God, that which lasts forever, okay? The humility, the boasting of the rich is everything in this world that I have won't last forever. So you've got this theme here of what lasts forever and what doesn't last forever. And I want to suggest that one station in life, whether poverty or wealth, um, the answer or the hope, um, the means by which we persevere under that trial, okay, is do we live from and do we live for that which is eternal. Just simplify it. Do we, whether you've got a lot or you got nothing, at that position in life, are you living for 
that which lasts forever? And are you living from? In other words, I know that this is my internal inheritance, therefore I will live my life in time in light of that. Does this make sense? See, that's the, that's the, the gist of this. Paul's gonna say this in 1 Corinthians 4, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Kind of makes sense even on the wealthy side, doesn't it? We see the wealth of our life, <laughs> but we don't see the eternity, the eternality of life with God. Our real hope is to live for that which lasts forever. Now, let me say this. It's not enough to live for something that lasts um, 100 years. That's not long enough. <laughs> it's, not, it's not enough to live for something that lasts for 10,000 years. It's not long enough. We were created and made to live forever. Eternity, you all. This is a tough thing to get our heads around, quite frankly, I know that. Um, I wanna show you an illustration just to help us get our, 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 our minds around it a bit. Sal Powell, I need your help. Stand over, stand over there on the first step with that. Natalie, I need your help. So Natalie, you stand right here. Now y'all, this is just a tape measure, okay? It's 100 feet long. You can stop there, babe. And the, uh, pull that tighter, Sal. It's 100 feet long and um, we're only at about 30-something feet. And this is one of those tape measures that um, it's broken down not into sixteenths, like small tape measures. It's broken down into tenths. So every inch has a, has a mark that's a tenth. And eternity, of course, would take this tape measure and extend it through that wall forever. And it'd extend through that wall forever. Is everybody with me? That's eternity. So... On the timeline, so to speak, of eternity, you and I live. We have a life. Moses said, um, what, we live 70 years, maybe 80 at best? And that's, that's the truth, you know? So we've got this little 70, 80-year span of life. Now, what does that look like in light of eternity, okay? So if you looked up here, and if, if, let's just be generous, and if, let's just say I, every tenth of an inch Let's just call it 100 years, okay? Every tenth of an inch is 100 years. What would your, what would your life look like on this tape measure? How big would it be? It'd be tiny, wouldn't it? I mean, in the back, you couldn't even see it. Now, what I did was I actually drew a picture of you on this timeline. Let me find it right here. I smudged it a little, but we got a slide of it. So there you are at about 21 feet. <laughs> you, you don't even, you know, you bear, you know, I'm being generous. I gave you 100 years. It's nothing, is it? It's just nothing. I have trouble with this, just like you. We, we always talk about eternal life. We talk about we're gonna live forever, y'all. I mean, do we really believe this? Do we really believe that that which lasts forever is that which matters most? Because if we really do, then we're gonna take that little life. Maybe you live to be 100, I don't know. So what? 
100 years in light of an eternity is still the blink of an eye. So how do we live our life on this planet in that little tiny window of time? And what James is telling us is whether you have a lot, thanks Nellie, Mm -hmm. or you have a little, okay? What you have, are you living for and are you living from what's eternal? If you have wealth, how much, this is a hard question, how much of your wealth and mine is at work for eternity? Now, we're really big on putting our assets in places where it's at work for us, for retirement. You know, it's a big thing. Get all your money working for you. I get that. You know, I'm not saying, you know, you don't need to have anything or can't enjoy things, but have you ever thought about that? How, how much of my wealth is at work for eternity? This is what James is getting at. I want to be clear on this. James does not say being wealthy is wrong. He doesn't say that. He doesn't tell the poor, you guys need to make more money. And he doesn't say to the wealthy, you need to give all yours away and become poor. So, so don't go there. This is not what he says. It's not the issue. The issue is, where's your trust? For those who have nothing, it's quite frankly, there's less of an obstacle to trusting in God, who's everything. But for those who have stuff, it's a bit more of a bump, quite frankly, a bit more of an obstacle to trust God with everything rather than the stuff you have and the stuff that I have. Here's the question I've been wrestling with. Does James consider me wealthy? What do you think? Yes. Well, what about you? Yes. <laughs> yes. I think so. Um, interesting. Peter Drucker, father of modern management, he wrote this a number of years back, so, so prevalent, relevant for us today. Um, he wrote in the Harvard Business Review. He said, throughout history, practically nobody had any choice about where they lived or the quality of life they lived. In a few hundred years, when the history of our time will be written from a long-term perspective, I think it's very probable that the most important event these historians will see is not technology, it's not the internet, it's not e-commerce. It's an unprecedented change in the human condition. For the first time, and I mean that literally, for the first time, substantial and rapidly growing numbers of people have choices. And let me say, we are totally unprepared for it. You know, it's hard to measure wealth, y'all. Look, $70,000 in Clarksville, Tennessee is not the same as $70,000 in San Jose, California, right? We know that. If you've got a million dollars and some of you in the room do, you know, you could go, I'm not wealthy. There are people who have a billion, right? I mean, it's just, you know, you don't know. But I think this is a decent part of wealth. Choices. Choices. We have lots of choices, Did you have a choice of shoes to wear this morning? I did. And I walked in my closet and I almost broke my ankle walking over all my shoes to get the ones I wanted. True. Did you have a choice of clothes to wear today? If you're married, do you have more than one vehicle? 
uh, do you have a choice to buy insurance? You ever thought about that? Do you think poor people who don't have much, what do they have to insure? But we have choices to get insurance. We're gonna insure our cars and our boats and our guns and our homes. And that's, that's good and right. Again, I'm not slamming any financial planning in this. I'm just saying we've got these choices. Do you have a choice on how you spend your leisure time? You ever think about that? People in the, most people in the world don't have leisure time, don't have money to choose what they're gonna do with their leisure time. So I, I, I'm not, and again, I've already said this, to be wealthy is not wrong. It's not even sinful, not at all. It's just how you view it, and how you hold it, how you live with it. So I do believe we'd all say, yeah, I'm with you. I think we'd, we would say, I think, I think he would say, yes, you're, all of us in the room are in that category. Well, from poverty to prosperity to the promise, look at verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, do you notice the bookend? Verses two and four, consider it joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, wholeness, completeness. And now on the back end, he says, uh, blessed is the one who perseveres, same Greek word under trial for once he's been approved, he'll receive the crown of life. What's the crown of life? Well, you know, there's a number of crowns in the New Testament. Um, there's probably, people would say five that um, the Bible speaks of that are given to those who persevere or um, walk with Christ. There's the imperishable crown, First Corinthians, the crown of rejoicing. First Thessalonians, the crown of righteousness. Second Timothy, the crown of glory. First Peter, the crown of life. That's James, and it's also found in Revelation. Y'all, are these literal crowns, you know, because Revelation says we'll cast our crown. I, I don't know that they're literal crowns, okay? What we, we can say with some pretty, pretty dogmatically is, you know, Stephanos, which is the word crown, um, it meant in this day a, a number of different things. And it was something that went on people's heads, but there were different types. Um, there was the, the uh, Stephanos, the crown that a, a, a bride would wear at a, at a wedding or at a festival. People would put a crown of you know, leaves on their head. You've seen people do this in weddings today. Um, so it's joyful and festive. You would celebrate that with that crown. There was a metal crown that kings wore, you know, so they had those crowns. Um, there's the laurel leaves that we get in First uh, and Second Timothy, run the race, you know, and you'll be crowned. So, so you have these physical realities of crowns. Uh, I don't know that they're literal, like, you know, now you're gonna, here's the crown of life. And quite frankly, in this passage, the best reading of this, and he will receive the crown of life, is actually this in the Greek. He will receive the crown, which is life. So here, the crown is life. Well, what do you mean the crown's life? Well, I mean, the crown is life. It's life as described in two to four. It's whole life, wholehearted life, complete, lacking in nothing. It's repeated in verse 12. It's the crown of life. Life is God intended, wholehearted, whole, complete, not lacking in anything life. Are you with me? That's the crown, so to speak, that we get. And by the way, it's life right now. It's not like hang in there and when you get there, you'll get it. No, you persevere into the trials of life now and you get a fuller, whole, complete life now. 
even as we grow in Christ's likeness. Now, he says this fullness of life, um, he, he says, is promised to those who love him. But it also says, if you persevere, you get the crown of life. So is it, is it you persevere or is it that you love him? Which is it? Well, I've actually got a little coin in my pocket that helps us with this once again. Is faith belief or is it the doing out of that belief? It's both. Is the crown of life given to those who persevere? Yes. Because those who persevere love Jesus. Yes. Which is it? It's both. Listen to John's words, John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. So uh, do you love Jesus? Yes. Are you obeying him? No. Well, then you don't love Jesus. Are you obeying Jesus? Yes. Do you love him? Yes. Well, I'm obeying him. Yes, and I love him. She said it's to love Jesus is to obey. And lest we begin to think, okay, that, that we would ever be able to go to Jesus any, in, in the future or now and say, I've loved you, give me the life. John writes in 1 John 1, 9, we love because he, what? First loved us. You all, our love of God, please hear this, is a response to his love for us. Always, always, always. He loved us while we were yet sinners. He loved us first. And our response of love and obedience is not to get something. It's because we've received the gift of his love. I've got two statements I'm gonna read here. Don't try and write them down. I'll put them on the, online because um, they're, they're a little tricky. When the life to come matters more to you than the life you have now. All you have now is put to work for the life to come. I'll say it again. When the life to come, when eternity, or eternity with God, when the life to come matters more to you than the life that you have right now, and it's not to diminish this life, please hear me. It's just, it, it, it puts it in proper perspective. Matters more to you than the life you have now. Then everything you have now, whether it's a lot or a little, you put it to work for the life to come. That's what Jesus said when he said, store up your treasures in heaven. Second statement, when the life to come matters more to you than the life you, than the life you have now, the life you have now will become more life than you ever imagined. See, it doesn't diminish this life. To live for the life to come doesn't take from this life. It gives us full, whole, complete life, this side of heaven. Probably 10 years ago, um, I heard a song, one of my, my favorite artists, Ben Rector, and some of you I know know Ben. Um, and this song always struck me uh, about our lives in this community. Because let's, let's, let's face our reality. We live in a very 
uh, well-to-do community, okay? And um, I always heard that song and thought, God, that's so true for us. And as I was reflecting on the passage this week, I thought, I think Ben is singing James's words to us. And so I just want you to listen to it. No slides, no music video, just the words, but you'll hear these words. This American dream is not what it seems. Maybe we're still breathing, but we're all asleep. Because I want to live until I die. Don't let the devil bury me alive. When my heart stops, let me go home. Don't let the suburbs kill my heart and soul. Gang, we live in the suburbs. It's killing us. (laughs) The very thing we moved here for. (laughs) Good schools, great opportunities, culture, affordability. That's not true anymore. All these things. Um, Isn't it interesting though? It's killing us. Let's listen to the song. Then we'll apply it. This American dream is not what it seems. Maybe we're still breathing, but we're all asleep. Until I die Don't let the dead 
if you have it, I want you to take your coin. I'm, I'd encourage you to keep them in your pocket, hang on to it somewhere. And let's take a few moments and I'm gonna trust the spirit to invite you to ponder if this is true and James is warning us, the very thing that we think's given us life is gonna kill us. It's one thing to know it. Is there a step of faith God's inviting you to take? Is there a choice to make? Is there a choice to make out of this text today for you? Would you consider that for a moment? Then I'll, I'll read us a benediction. Let's stand together. Many think that James had Jeremiah 9 in, in, in mind as he penned part of this text. A good word for us to go out on. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts Boast of this, that he knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. God bless and amen.